Hello, Green Antler listeners. This is Sarah Fowler of the Waterfowl Podcast. You're listening to Season 3. And I expect this to be released in March. Um, But I'm recording it in July because I have so many episodes in the bank, but I am not at the Green Antler on Discovery Crescent and Tassus today. Today I am in the um, St. Joseph's Catholic Church um, in the Taco, the Tassus Artisans Cooperative. And for the last three days, I've been working here just doing the cashier and um, selling some of the excellent art that we have here. We have puzzle makers, we have sign makers, we have stained glass artists, potters, so many needle workers, jam makers, quilters, watercolorists, and silversmiths. I also really love the paper cards that um, two people are offering. Uh, One are pictures and one are uh, paintings, so they're nice blank cards that are available. And because COVID did shut down the Tassus Artisans Co-op last year, we're sort of on a rebuilding. We're really happy to have uh, our doors open and some visitors taking home some of the artisans' hard work. Um, one of the signs that are up on the wall, uh, always stay humble and kind. I really love uh, both of these two signs. There's another one beside it with the, the antler Um a buck with his antlers and so kudos to the artist who makes those. Um, I am today going to be reading a bit from this book. It's called Cobalt, Cradle of the Demon Metals, Birth of a Mining Superpower and it's by Charlie Angus. I got this book from the library. Um, the really excellent uh, um, back of this book. I'll just read this right off and then I'll get into where I'm left off. Cobalt is a must read. Readers will be forever moved by the stories of those who fought for justice. Pamela Palmiter, author of Warrior Life, Indigenous Resistance, and Resurgence. Wow, this is a remarkable account of what we now call settler colonialism. This tragedy is playing itself out again, but it doesn't need to. Not if we heed the warning this book eloquently provides. Bill McNibbin, author of Falter, has the human game began to play itself out. Cobalt is filled with great stories, larger-than-life characters, and rich history. Maud Barlow, author of Whose Water Is It Anyways? Taking Water Protection into Public Hands. I was at once elevated and infuriated by the events account recounted so masterfully in this book with Cobalt Charlie Angus has hit pay dirt. James Dashunk, author of Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Surfation, and the Loss of Aboriginal Life. A wild, important, and suspenseful look into the guts of the North, pointing to the future as closely as it sinks into the past. Dave Bedini, author of Midnight Light, a personal journey to the North. The world is desperate for cobalt. It drives the proliferation of digital and clean technologies. But this demon metal has a horrific present and a troubled history blighted by the theft of indigenous lands. 
the exploitation of workers, and the destruction of the natural environment. The modern search of cobalt for cobalt has brought investors back to a small town in northern Canada, a place called Cobalt. Award-winning author Charlie Angus demonstrates how the template for resource extraction that was established during the mining rush at Cobalt set Canada on the path to becoming the world's dominant mining superpower. And this book is published by House of Anansi Press. Uh, That's House of Anansi, A-N-A-N-S-I dot com. So before I jump into where I left at page 152, I'm going to go to the back and read the... um, Underneath the picture of Charlie Angus, Charlie Angus has been a member of Parliament for Timmins James Bay since 2004. He is the author of eight books about the North, Indigenous issues, and mining culture, including the award-winning Children of the Broken Treaty. He's also the lead singer of the Juno-nominated alt-country band Grievous Angels. Charlie and his wife, author Britt Griffin, raised their three daughters in an abandoned mine site in Cobalt, Ontario, that looks like a crusader castle. So, I left off. So powerful was Monroe's mystique that he was able to reinvent himself as a popular entertainer. He signed up for a vaudeville show called Road to Ruin, where he was paid an impressive $3,000 a week to act out his story of a young miner taking on the heavyweight champion of the world. In August 1904, he was finally given an official title shot with a rematch, a rematch with Jeffries, who was angry at Monroe for using the Butte fight to build his own reputation as at the champion's expense. Jeffries had trained hard for this rematch, and the power of a true heavyweight champion showed from the opening bell. He charged at Monroe and systematically destroyed him. The fight was stopped in the second round. Monroe returned to mining, arriving in Cobalt in 1906, intent on finding his own silver mine. Finding the camp too overrun with competition, he set himself up as Reeve of what he called Elk City. Even though the new silver camp 50 kilometers up the Montreal River at Elk Lake was little more than a few muddy streets filled with hotels and illegal drinking establishments. But Monroe's allure drew men to him, and soon there were 5,000 people in his newly formed town, with another 7,000 prospectors working the bush in neighboring Gowanganda. In the summer of 1909, Jack Monroe headed to New York City. There was nothing uncommon about men from the silver fields traveling to New York to promote mining deals. In fact, trips by cobalt mining men to New York were so common that the Navarre Hotel on 7th Avenue and West 38th Street ran a daily ad in the cobalt newspaper. But this time Monroe had come to New York to make the biggest deal of his life. He wanted to use his connections to both Johnson and Jeffries to stage a fight between the two heavyweights in Cobalt. The New York World reported that Monroe arrived in the city decked out in rocks that would make any Broadway actor jealous. He checked into the Navarre and then Navarre, N-A-V-A-R-R-E, Navarre. 
and then decided to pay his respects to the mayor of America's greatest city. The mayor's staff informed Monroe that George B. McClellan Jr., son of the Civil War general, was busy and sent him away, but when McClellan realized that the famous Jack Monroe had just come to see him, he personally went out to retrieve Monroe from the street and invited him back into his office. The mayor of New York wanted to know, could Jeffries really beat Johnson? Monroe suggested that if Jeffries got himself in shape for the fight, it would be a colored funeral for Johnson. Promoting a professional boxing match was illegal under Ontario law, but Monroe was a hustler. He assured sports writers that he and his fellow investors had the know-how to get the fight off the ground. Monroe told reporters that he had the backing of mining men worth $20 million and bragged that he would build an arena to seat 2,500 people. Nope, 25,000 people, more than the entire population of the North at the time. Knowing this fight would be an international spectacle, unlike any that had ever been staged before, he tagged the value of the moving picture rights at $2 million. In August, Monroe offered $100,000 for the fight to be held in Northern Ontario. According to the press, Monroe does not stake does not state the exact location but says it's less than 36 hours from Chicago and New York. By September, Monroe said he would pay $80,000 for the fight. 2 months later, he had dropped the offer to 50,000. In the end, the fight was hosted by a rival promotion team in Reno, Nevada on July 4, 1910. As Monroe predicted, The deal for the movie rights made the Johnson-Jeffries showdown a truly 20th century spectacle. The fight wasn't even close. Johnson left the Great White Hope lying on the canvas. Black fans didn't dare show their jubilation publicly, but white mobs felt free to launch anti-black violence across nearly 50 cities in the U.S., in the United States. The film of the fight was banned in many cities and states in the United States and in South Africa. Monroe had failed to stage the fight of the century, but he did host a series of boxing exhibitions in Cobalt that exploited the public's fascination with interracial pugilism. In two of the fights, the black boxers maintain a good-natured approach, showing no intent to seriously engage the white fighters and refusing to come out for the second round. However, Amos Good stepped into the ring with a willingness to fight. Good was one of the several one of several local black men who had recently been falsely charged with looting in a major fire for which no white men had been charged. And he punched white fighter Jack Stocks to the canvas on the second round. Good wanted to keep fighting, but Monroe intervened and pushed him out of the ring. There are a few records There are few records of the early black inhabitants of Cobalt. They worked as teamsters, prospectors, hotel keepers, cooks, firefighters, and shoeshine operators. Some were Americans, whereas others were Canadian. They appeared in the occasional photograph or in casual reference in the newspaper. Consider this story 
in the March 1909 edition of the Daily Nugget about a drama at the local police court. Miss Amelia Jackson, the white wife of a well-known black man in the community, believed her Syrian neighbor was trying to take her husband and there had been a backyard clothesline dispute between the two women. Amelia Jackson was likely the wife of either J.S. Jackson or his brother Charles, the two boxing brothers who operated the American Palace boarding house. The boarding house served as a stopover for American adventurers coming in from the western gold and copper towns. It was on the edge of a downtown thoroughfare that featured a vaudeville theater, two large bordellos, a bucket of blood salo- the bucket of blood saloon, a pool hall, and numerous stores. The neighbor, the neighbor would have been part of a large Syrian population that lived in the town's foreign quarter, also known as French Town. Many came from the village settlements of Rashaya, Zali, Balbek, in the Bekka Valley of what is now Lebanon. Other families came from Damascus or the village of Hasbaya, which had recently been the scene of interreligious fighting and a massacre of Syrian Christians. The Syrian merchant class in Cobalt lived and worked alongside Russian Jewish shopkeepers who had recently fled the pogroms in the shelets of Eastern Europe. Shettles. Shettles. S-H-T-E-T-L-S. Shettles of Eastern Europe. They supplied clothes, supplies, delicacies to immigrant miners and their families. The newspaper story of Miss Amelia Jackson and her Syrian neighbor is intriguing. The interracial nature of the love triangle is mentioned only in passing, even though racial lines were strictly enforced in the Canada of this period. Cobalt, in fact, had numerous mixed-race couples. How was it possible for them to evade the defined racial and social conventions of the era? Because Frontier was more than just a geographical location. It is all was also a social construct. For example, there was a story of John Truman, a young black cook from Cobalt who fell in love with a white farm girl, Hazel Lena Andrews, from the neighboring community of New Liskard. When he went to visit her, he was attacked by a white mob. Truman was determined to marry Andrews and went to see the provincial attorney general who advised him to marry the woman but stay in Cobalt. In Cobalt, it was possible to have an interracial relationship whereas a few miles away, it was the cause of mob violence. Richard Dick Elliott was another member of the Cobalt Black community. He worked in the mines, but also as a prospector and mining promoter, and once bet a 19-acre silver mine mining claim on the outcome of a hockey game. Elliot won the bet, and a white mining promoter was forced to turn over gold claims that formed the basis of the Four Nations gold mine near Kirkland Lake. High-risk bets 
High-risk bets like Elliot's were part of the gambling culture that allowed hard-working miners to blow off steam. Men who made $3.50 a day in dangerous work underground thought nothing of betting enormous sums on cards and craps. Local professional gamblers were known to bet as much as $500 on the turn of a card or $1,000 on a cockroach race. The Syrian community could bet on local athlete Hassan Abdallah, a national class writer, wrestler, a national class wrestler who took American champion Yankee Joe Rogers to a draw in Buffalo in a fight that was interrupted by the sudden appearance of the police. People would even gamble on mine properties based on whether a local stray known as Cobalt the Dog had seen to favor one mine crew or another. The dog's exploits was covered in the media, particularly his habit of hopping the train to Toronto. What the dog did in the big city was a mystery, but he always found his way back home to Cobalt. Hard rock mining was always has always been driven by a devil-may-care bravado, a feature of a way of life where men don't know whether they're going to come home at the end of their shift, and mining families understand that their very lives depend on the vagaries of geological forces set in motion billions of years ago. Yet mining culture thrives on irrational optimism that the mining gods can be placated by grand public gestures of excess, defiance, and recklessness. Cobalt was a town where the workers fought for a living wage and safe conditions, but were willing to gamble recklessly on extravagant sporting events. Chapter 14, page 159, The Canadian Holy Grail. So, the Stanley Cup winning Montreal Wanderers arrived in Cobalt on January 24th, 1909 to play the silver the cobalt silver kings at the cobalt arena the newly built facility had the capacity for 3,500 spectators with 2,800 seats and standing room for another 700 a special tea room with a glass wall ensured spectators stayed warm while watching the hockey game below more than 3,000 cobalters showed up the next day to watch the Stanley Cup champions. When the Wanderers took the ice, excited fans leaning forward on the standing gallery caused the railing to give way and seven men fell to the ice below. But in typical Cobalt fashion, the game quickly got underway after the badly injured men were sent to the hospital. Montreal was led by star defenseman Art Ross, who played a revolutionary style of hockey by taking control of the puck in the Montreal end and leading the team's offensive charge by rushing the puck up to up the ice. Ross made several spectacular rushes into the cobalt zone, but was frustrated by the lack of space. Because of the town's desire to fill the arena with seats for fans, the ice was 40 feet shorter and 30 feet narrower than the Wanderers were used to playing on. Not only were they hemmed in on all sides by the tough cobalt team, but they were also blocked by the solid goaltending of Chief Joseph Henry Jones, a hired professional gun from Michigan. Cobalt won the game 6-4. to four. 
Joseph Jones was an exceptional athlete and the first professional Indigenous hockey player. A full half century before the famous Fred Saskamoos broke the racial barrier in the NHL. The other Indigenous connection in this game was Art Ross, who was fluent in Ojibwa, having spent his childhood at the Hudson's Bay Post in Northern Ontario. Following the game, Jones and Ross joined the other players for a celebratory dinner at Goodall's, Cobalt's finest restaurant. Although sport is an area that has often excluded non-white players, the silver miners were happy for Jones to cross that barrier. The mining magnets had been carefully watching the Stanley Cup team because they were scouting prospects for their upcoming regional showdown between the two rival local teams, the Cobalt Silver Kings and the Haleybury Comets. At that time, hockey was largely a regional game played by amateur teams. However, the mine owners had large amounts of disposable income to indulge their interest in gambling and sports. On the morning that the Montreal team was boarding their private train to return south, centerman Harry Smith announced he was staying. Even though Montreal had a game coming up against their arch-rivals, the Ottawa Senators, Smith had seen the lure of mining money and agreed to play for the Haleybury Comets in the upcoming finals against Cobalt. Smith's salary came from mine owners Noah Timmins. Just a few years earlier, Noah and his brother Henry had been shopkeepers in Mattawa. In the summer of 1903, Fred LaRose, LaRose of the Apocryphal Hammer, A-P-O-C-R-Y-P-H-A-L, Apocryphal Hammer, and Fox Origin Story, oh right, at the beginning of the book, came into the shop to purchase supplies while waiting for the train. He told Noah about his discovery and showed him some silver samples. The Timmins brothers immediately got a loan of $3,500 and brought, bought out LaRose's share. They established the consortium to exploit the rich silver vein on the LaRose mine. But the powerful Renfrew industrialist Michael John M.J. O'Brien had claim on the same large hill staked by LaRose. The legal battle between the big cobalters, as they came to be known, was eventually settled with the Timmins brothers taking the front side of the hill and O'Brien controlling the rear part of the property. There was enough silver in that hill to make the competing co big cobalters fantastically rich, and they decided to move their rivalry to the world of hockey. With Montreal centerman picked for Haleybury, Cobalt manager Thomas Hare headed out to hire some stars to even the field. Ottawa Senators captain Bruce Stewart turned down an offer of $400. Hare then moved on to Montreal where Art Ross and Walter Small Smile agreed to play in the two-game final for the extraordinary fee of $1,200. With so much riding on the outcome, the two players were brought into Cobalt secretly just prior to the first game on February 23, 1909. Home ice advantage 
went to Haleybury at the Matabanic Hotel. The betting was intense. Art Ross remembered seeing four hundred thousand. No. Art Ross remembered seeing forty thousand dollars, the equivalent of one million today, change hands in twenty minutes. Haleybury flooded the ice with small surges of water to make the surface uneven, in the hope it would slow Ross down. But it wasn't the ice that caused Ross trouble. He was targeted by the Comets for some serious violence. Early in the game, he took a stick to the head and was laid out on the ice for nearly 20 minutes. He was covered in blood and the doctors worked hard to put his nose back in place. Wobbling to his feet, Ross led another rush with the puck behind Haleybury's net, but was speared in the stomach with a stick and fell to the ice. For good measure, Haleybury goon Tommy Smith kicked him in the chest with his skates. Nonetheless, Ross scored the first goal and then the Toronto Star reporter reported the real dirty work commenced. Ross took another shot to the head where Walter Small, while Walter Small Smale was hit hard and sent to the ice three times. The only Cobalt player to escape being bloodied was goalie Chief Jones. Regardless, Cobalt won 7-1. After the game, fans showed up at Ross and Small's hotel and showered their room with nuggets of pure silver. The two men were considered too beat up to finish the series, but they decided they wanted vengeance on Haleybury. The Haleybury mining men believe the two Montreal stars were finished raising the betting odds in favor of Haleybury win, and Noah Timmins alone was reported to have put $40,000 down on a Haleybury victory. Two other Haleybury fans bet everything they own on the game, but then Ross and Smile came out to play for the first period to the delight of the Cobalt fans. Just before dropping the puck, referee and local mine doctor Eddie Phillips told the players, The sight of blood, men, is no novelty to me. Cobalt was leading 5-1, to one, heading into the break. Haleybury came back to tie the game. Leslie McFarlane, who later went on to fame as the author of the Hardy Boys series, using the name Franklin W. Dixon stated that the final period was the roughest period of hockey ever played anywhere. The game ended when Haleybury player Horace Gall scored and the fans showered the ice with money and chunks of high-grade silver. Haleybury goalie Patty Morin rubbed, grabbed a tub of ice from the dressing room filled it with as many nuggets as possible, and then sat on the tub to protect it. Kobold had won the series on points and wanted to challenge for the Stanley Cup, the preeminent prize in Canadian hockey since 1893. The cup was awarded to the winner of the showdown between the top teams in the amateur leagues, which tended to be English-speaking teams on the Eastern Canada Hockey Association. The Stanley Cup 
Consortium, however, rejected Cobalt's bid. Angered by this rejection, Cobalt mine owners developed a plan to undermine the ECHA, that's English-speaking, no, Eastern Canadian Hockey Association, by creating the new league that would feature Cobalt, Haleybury, the Montreal Wanderers, and the Renfrew Millionaires. In December 1909, they formed the National Hockey Association, the NHA, and added the second Montreal team to draw Francophone fans. This team was called the Montreal Canadiens. Mining barons Tom Hare and Ambrose O'Brien paid the $1,000 league entry fee for the Canadians and then kicked in $5,000 in salaries to get them launched. In their first pro game on January 5th, 1910, the Montreal Canadiens beat Cobalt 7-6 in overtime. The overspending by Renfrew, Cobalt, and Haleybury couldn't last. The teams were soon in debt and one by one slipped from the league. The NHA was absorbed into the new league, which became the NHL. The only team to survive was the Montreal Canadiens, a team that went on to become the most dominant sports franchise in Canadian history. Canada is a nation obsessed with hockey trivia, but few remember that the legendary Lions of Winter began their storied career playing against Cobalt, as both teams were formed as an amusement by the Cobalt Silver Barons. Chapter 15, page 165, Cobalt as a Vaudeville Production. On August 23, 1909, The Dollar Mark, a stage play about Cobalt, premiered at Wallach's Theatre on 30th Street and Broadway in New York. The Wallach was an upscale establishment, a palace of elegance holding 800 patrons, with a massive chandelier, polished red granite columns, mahogany seats covered with garnet plush silk. There were audience there were there the audience came to watch a showdown over the fictitious Nellie Davis mine in Cobalt, where prospector James Gresham struggled to protect his property from ruthless New York financiers. The dollar mark ran for 48 shows on Broadway at the time when New York was emerging as the North American Center for Entertainment. With live theater, popular music produced out of Tin Pan Alley, and most of all, vaudeville. The roots of vaudeville lay in the burlesque, minstrel, and medicine shows of the Wild West. By the 1880s, these shows were being adapted for urban audiences, with the rough edges and risque dialogue of the frontier shows smoothed over. Something for everybody was vaudeville's pitch to audiences looking for an evening of fun. The show relied on the audience's willingness to suspend belief and go with the flow of a spectacle where comedians, jugglers, and mind readers shared the same bill. Vaudeville was an entertainment frontier that mesmerized people by claiming telepathy was real, and it bent social conventions with male and female impersonators. It was one big, ever-changing show. Stories of the gold rush were popular, so it's not surprising that Cobalt was considered a good subject for a New York stage. The Cobalt Silver Boom 
was like vaudeville in that it relied on the willingness of investors to accept the seemingly unbelievable proposition that a town in the isolated bush could produce a never-ending stream of wealth. By 1908, the second cobalt stock boom was in full swing, drawing in new investors after the exodus of those who had so recently been stung in the Guggenheim debacle. A sardonic editorial in the Toronto Telegram compared the stock market machinations of the new mining promoters in Toronto to a vaudeville show. The stirring melodrama, The Boom in Cobalt, is being revised for a short run. It was played here a couple seasons a couple of seasons ago to splendid business, but owing to unforeseen circumstances, the curtain was hurried hurriedly rung down, but is now supported by several newcomers specially engaged for the occasion at enormously high prices. In fact, the salaries paid to all concerned in this melodrama, from stars to scene shifters, is so extravagant that the only hope there can be for a prolonged run is to find an audience composed of infatuated millionaires. But more than that, Cobalt was a place where its life itself appeared at times as if it were part of a large larger vaudeville extravaganza photographs of the downtown gave give the impression of a half-finished stage set something slapped together to present to present an image of sophistication wealth and promise the north american vaudeville circuit was almost as grueling as a performer's for the performers as unearthing silver was for the hard rock miners of cobalt The March 1911 production of A Stubborn Cinderella started out with 88-night run on Broadway and a cast of 66 headed up by John Barrymore. A modified cast with a huge array of costumes and dance routines then hit the road across the United States and Canada. The show arrived in Cobalt for a single day with a matinee and evening performance before moving on to other northern communities. The local media noted the singer Hazel Kirk had not missed one performance in 28 straight weeks of touring. Vaudeville Theatre played a leading role in the cultural life of Cobalt. The ramshackle streets were home to eight theatres, running a dizzying array of entertainment acts six nights of the week. The mixture of entertainment on offer was extraordinary, from England's dramatic thespian Herbert Beerbaum Tree and America's Sweetheart, Mary Pickford, to the Chernavasky Trio performing their classical repertoire. Repertoire. The upscale Empire Theatre on Lang Street boasted a full orchestra and presented shows from New York and Toronto. Theatres like the Bijou and the Idle Hour played to the working-class audiences, The Lyric Theatre in the town square, also known as the Opera House, was owned by local entertainment and sporting magnate Thomas Hare. In a display of pretension, town officials designated the main road in front of the theatre, the Rue de l'Opera. 
The brash vaudeville nature of the Silver City was personified by theater manager Charles Stevens. He arrived in Cobalt in 1910 and took over the failing Idle Hour Theater. He renamed, he renamed it the Princess Theater and brought an aggressive, self-aggrandizing promotion style to the theater scene in Cobalt. It is neither bullheaded luck nor accident that I am the most successful theatrical business in the city of Cobalt today, he boasted. No siree, it's because I have always given you your money's worth, sometimes more. In early 1911, Stevens hit upon the idea for creating a cultural uproar in Cobalt. Inspired by Paul Poiret, the Parisian fashion iconoclast, Poiret was a cultural revolutionary who was heavily influenced by Sergi Digavilev, D-I-A-G-H-I-L-E-V, Digavilev's groundbreaking ballets russe. He introduced fashion shoots to push the mass appeal of fashion. In February 1911, Poiret caused an enormous scandal in France when he introduced a provocative new piece of clothing inspired by the East, harem pants. Until that moment, the socially acceptable attire for Western women was floor-length dresses and pants were the strict domain of men. But Poiret had designed an outfit with billowy pants that narrowed at the ankles. He promoted these harem pants at a high-society soiree where those who refused to dress in the controversial style were not admitted. The response was that was as he expected. The North American press denounced his creation as brazen and indecent and covered his spring line as an example of the rise of extreme fashion. Women who wore the garment were subjected to assault, harassment, arrest, and even murder. In some places, the pants were outlawed and shops that displayed them had their windows smashed. Even the Pope waded into the controversy, condemning the outfit as an attack on the distinction between the sexes. <laughs> Stevens was determined to cash in on Poiret's controversial garment to promote his vaudeville theater. He was banking on the belief that Cobalt would relish the opportunity to replicate a Parisian fashion revolution on its streets. To build drama, Stevens announced in advance the exact hour that his wife, vaudeville actress Daisy Primrose, would walk down the town's main street in the notorious pants. As Stevens and Primrose set out on a promenade from the Princess Theatre to the office at the Daily Nugget, downtown Cobalt was packed with people eager to watch, to catch a glimpse of the young actress. Cameras were at a premium, the Nugget noted and every available machine in town was in the hands of some young man who took advantage of every stop made by Mr. and Mrs. Stevens to secure a snap. Daisy Primrose played the role of the mysterious girl in the harem pants to perfection. The pants were Copenhagen blue and made from Liberty satin. They boasted large buttons down the sides, as did her coat. A photograph 
shows Primrose coming into the town center with a huge smile on her face, projecting the confidence of a young woman who has been given a starring role in a mining town production of an international fashion moment. On the following three nights, Primrose and Stevens performed a comedy skit and sang a duet while she paraded in the brazen outfit for the audience. But in the world of vaudeville, everything, including this international fashion controversy, had a short life. After three days of promoting what Stevens had described as the biggest sensation of the century, he retired the outfit and announced his next big stunt for the week. Local vaudeville actress Ivy Evelyn would stand in the town square and give out a thousand pennies to the local boys if they showed up at 4.30 sharp. So, I have only two minutes left and then I'm shutting down the uh, taco today, the Tassin's Artisans Co-op. Um, and so I'm going to maybe read to the end of page 170, but this has been a Green Antler production. I am broadcasting this uh, from the village of Tassis. My name is Sarah Fowler, and you are listening to the Waterfowl Podcast, today being recorded at St. Joseph's Church in the rectory where the Tassis Artisans Co-op is. And the Tassis Artisans Co-op is open from 11 till 4 in the summers. So, picking up where I left off in the book. In the summer of 1909, a production of the stage play called Imperial Girls, put together by Thomas Hare, reflected an odd prescience, the promise and heartbreak of a town, and the mercy of the demon medals. He hired actors from Toronto for a series of comedic vignettes and musical numbers that accumulated in a final scene where the actors played millionaires throwing fake money from the stage. At one point, the stage manager in Haleybury threw out their real earnings to the delight of the crowd. After a lucrative run playing to the miners of the north, they turned south, and that's when the tour went off the rails, beset by cancelled shows and freezing weather. By the time the production reached Belleville, the stage millionaires were broke and hungry. When they returned to the hotel after one performance, they found that they had been evicted and their trunks seized for collateral. With nowhere to go, some of the actors tried getting bit parts in a competing production at the Royal Alexandra Theatre. One cast member begged a police officer to give her money, give her the money to get out of Belleville. The police contacted her family in Toronto, who sent her the train fare home. One of the actors told the press, the irony of it, there we were getting hundreds of fake dollars every night on stage and throwing it around as if it were our last thought and all the time we were wondering if we would be fortunate enough to meet someone generous enough to treat us to a bean sandwich. The story of the Imperial Girls Tour was covered avidly in the Toronto and Cobalt Press. One article led with the pointed subtitle began well at cobalt but vain rapidly petered out playing up the obvious irony of this vaudeville production produced in a town that promised so much and left so many penniless the story of hopelessly poor actors peddling the stage show about millionaire success seemed like the perfect way to describe life in cobalt 
but it wasn't simply a story about the false promises of Cobalt. It reflected the dark reality of the vaudeville circuit. Every night in dingy theaters across North America, actors presented themselves as the epitome of glamour, wealth, and adventure. But the working conditions were unforgiving and the pay was terrible. In fighting for better conditions, they faced firings and blacklisting, not unlike the miners risking their lives to unearth enormous wealth for distant investors and shareholders without seeing the benefit themselves. The cobalt silver boom mirrored the rise, peak, and collapse of vaudeville. The The industry was at its height and... In the first decade of the 20th century, but by 1915-16, vaudeville had been sidelined by the growing power of film. In a very real way, Cobalt played a role in the demise of vaudeville. Art historian Sihoban Angus points out that the flush of silver ore, which was essential for film, helped revolutionize film technology by making it affordable. One of these technologies, technological inventions was the silver screen. People often think that the name comes from the glamorous connection to Hollywood. In fact, the screen was named for the presence of silver halides that allowed for a more reflective surface for showing films in theaters. That silver came from cobalt. Many vaudeville players served as the basis for early movies, including The Dollar Mark, which was released internationally in 1914 with the tagline, A Stirring Tale of Cobalt's Early Days, When the Lure of Gold Made Men Demons and Lives Were as Dirt. So that's page 172 of a book, Cobalt, by Charlie Angus. And I'm going to leave it there because it's the start of part five, Catastrophe and Collapse. Dark-skinned children, many of them with babies in their arms, sat and whimpered among the wreck of their homes while their parents ran frantically to and fro, beseeching bystanders to help them. And then the looting began. Cobalt Journalist, July 2nd, 1909. And there's a picture of the Cobalt Fire on page... 173. So, I will again thank everyone for listening to the Waterfall Podcast. I am going to turn the sign to closed of the Tassus Artisans Co-op. I'm going to turn the fan off, make sure the, the lights are out and the open sign is turned off, and I'm going to go home and visit with my family. So I hope everyone has a really good day and I look forward to releasing this episode in March of 2023. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye-bye.